Okay, here we go. Uh, this is, uh, as you know, low Sunday in the church. This is the most empty Sunday of the year. <laughs> uh, it's actually called low Sunday in many places because uh, you know people don't come. They do their Easter gig and then they're exhausted apparently and don't come back. But you'll notice we're still in gold because it is the eighth day of Easter. And you heard that in John's reading for today. They were there. John is the one who gives us the eights as the day of recreation. So you heard them. Jesus starts on Easter night. And then eight days later, he starts on Easter night, he recreates the disciples by breathing on the bush. And then eight days later, he comes back for Thomas. And Thomas then is recreated. He's sort of caught back up to creation, which is, um, in the West at least, that's where eight comes from. The eight sides on a, on a uh, the eight sides on the font and, uh, you know, all the other eights that are kind of drawn in, eight people in the ark and the eighth day circumcision and all that. So, but it's in, there it is in John's Gospel. It was odd because in the Russians in the East, they don't have that sensibility. Um, when I lectured there and I just sort of went on like everybody knows this, that was a very Western notion, so that was kind of strange. Uh, so anyway, I know we're light and people are traveling and all that. Um, you've got what I gave you last time around. I have, uh, you know, some of this, I have some more copies of this bitter um, crucifixion scene that we looked at last time, which I'd be happy to give you if you would like to see it. Uh, but I didn't, presuming there might be some people here today who weren't here last time, you know, I just didn't want to do that without, um, without uh, you know, saying something first. So I'll do that in a second. Then um, if you, especially this group, could mark your calendar for the 20th of April, we're going to go across the street and spend a couple hours with the liturgical designer. And, you know, I mean, surely you can see, I hope, that everything that we're doing here, part of the reason we're doing this on Sunday right now, is because when you go into a new sanctuary, <clears throat> uh, theology drives design because design teaches theology, right? So designing a sanctuary and trying to sort that out is a theological experience. Um, there are... There are a great one that comes to mind is St. Paul's Lutheran Church in downtown Fort Wayne. You could teach your entire confirmation class from the stained glass, the mosaics, the symbolism. You wouldn't have to open a book. You could teach the whole class just by having your class sit in the sanctuary and just point to things and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that fit together? In fact, it was Gainick who remarked the other day that um, this stained glass that you never see before and I'd love to know if anybody knows if this is original or was intended, but it is the creating hand of the Father who um, does, in fact, reach his hand just down to the chalice below. Uh, and that goes with the epistle today about uh, the Father does this through the Son by way of the Holy Spirit. And you sort of look at that. Now, you all never get to see that, but every time before we celebrate, we look up at the Holy Trinity above and especially the creating hand of the Father who then um, puts the Lamb of God, of course, on the left side. There's Jesus on the left side, and the Spirit swooping down. And that all is concentrated into the chalice that lies below it. So there's this, this so at least for the pastors, this great reminder, just before you say the verba, of what exactly is happening. That is, the Holy Trinity is about to give out this good gift. I mean, that's just one thing in here. So if you can come on the 20th, that would be a good thing. There's been... Um, it's been a really good group to work with. He's a very good guy. The real estate committee has been great. Um, the committee who's been meeting has been great. Uh, you know, it's this double thing of 
uh, you know, where it's not going to look like the Vatican. Uh, you know, we don't have the money for that. But in fact, you know, we're, we've stretched to do this deal, and, and so we have to recognize that, and we have to stay within our means. On the other hand, you know, it is going to be our space, and our space for a good long time. And so we have to think about that and how that works together. So this, um, this the push and pull of um, staying within our means, but also having a place that's fit for uh, the delivery of Christ's gifts. In some ways, you could think about you know, what happens on the 20th for all of you as, as a final exam. You know, what you should come to that and say would be, does this represent the biblical notion of Noam, for example? Do I see in this place the incarnational presence of God on the altar giving out his gifts and building his community? Because that, as you recall, has been the definition of beauty from the scriptures. Do I understand uh, that God is present and changing and moving and living and then sending us back out into the world? Do I understand that I'm being recreated for something better someday? And yet, while I live here in the world but not of the world, uh, I leave here each time uh, and carry that with me. You know, those are the sorts of questions you begin to ask. And all of those things should be hopeful uh, uh, when we go into that. Because, you know, you can't do, uh, you know, you can't do amazingly brilliant things without amazingly brilliant amounts of money. But hopefully what we've come to is um, a lot of good stuff. And if, you know, it'll be very interesting to see now as you kind of ease into it and sort of get a feel for it. Uh, does this all make sense? Or why this way rather than that way? Or why didn't you choose this? And, and sometimes the answer is theological. Sometimes the answer is, gosh, we just, you know, that's another million dollars. And those are the kind of things that we all got to work together and kind of figure out as we go forward and uh, try to build a church. So really, from 2 to 4 on the 20th is a good, uh, that's going to be a, a, that's a big day. And if you can all come for that, that would be a nice thing. Any questions about that or anything else? We're going to keep going with beauty for a few weeks at least. Uh, you know, by constitution, we need to get a couple of voters meetings in before the 1st of July, which is always a press. And we also know that June is a dead month because as soon as kids graduate from school, you know, people go to the four winds and we never want people. We don't want to be doing business when people are traveling or out or moving. You know, we just, you know, it's not a good thing. If we have to, we would. But so we're, you know, we don't have many weeks before we have to make all kinds of uh, big decisions again about, you know, budget and, and staffing and, and governing board and where we're going. All of those things. So, you know, pay attention these next few weeks. I know that it will be very, uh, very, very busy. So, okay, any that okay? Questions about anything? So, you know, we need to get back into the discipline. I was thinking. I've been thinking all morning, and actually, I've talked to the other pastors about this too, um, but. It's going to be extraordinarily important uh, as we move that we have a strong sense of who we are and what we're about. And I've been thinking a lot about how best to get at that. Uh, it's going to be very important for people to have a strong sense of uh, the Lord is there for me every week in, in, in the divine service. I need to be there. I need to be saying my prayers every day. I need to be having... Um, devotions with my family every day. I need to be um, strong in my giving and strong in my service and strong in my witness. It's going to be extraordinarily important for us to do that. There's always um, a great amount of uh, stress in any big change. And frankly, for a church, this is about as big a change as you can have. 
is about as big as it gets in a church, uh, sort of so, short of something catastrophic. This is about the biggest positive change you can have in a church. But you know, change has changed, and it's difficult for us, and uh, it's different, and you know, you feel a little bit off balance, and things are new, and um, of all the places in the world, especially in a postmodern age where things are supposed to be solid uh, and even comfortable, though at times they're painful, the church is meant to be that place. So we've got, you know, we know that in the next, um, say, 18 months, we've got a very large challenge in front of us. It's going to be extraordinarily important for people to show a lot of maturity and give each other a lot of space and um, understand that, you know, there's going to be some things rubbing a little bit, you know, and that we just need to say, uh, yeah, we knew that was coming. And frankly, you can't discount the satanic. Um, you really have to remember, and over the course of the time I've been pastor, I think I've come to realize more um, that there are, for every great move, there's a counter move by darkness. And we just need to be aware of that. Uh, that's part of the deal. I was struck by how in the epistle today, we went immediately from crucifixion to resurrection to suffering. I mean, we didn't get eight days into the new year after Easter, and the lessons are all about suffering. But both, the, both Acts uh, and the First Peter text are all about suffering. And Thomas is personally suffering because of his neglect of the resurrection. So I, I just that was very striking today, even in these um, 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. You just sort of take a lesson from that. Just take a lesson from that. And um, just kind of, if you can be explicit about that in your prayers and in your devotions, uh, how we engage each other, how we listen to each other, how we care for each other, how we move forward together, um, you know, that, that's going to that's gonna matter in the, in the months ahead. All right, everybody okay? Got questions about anything? It's quasi-modo genitai Sunday. Uh, the most quasi-modo most people ever know is from the Disney film, but it's not exactly that. Quasi-modo, like newborn babies, like little babies. So um, your life starts over. And you remember the time, that this was the time in the early church, people were baptized at the vigil, and then often they were kept inside the church for a whole week. And they, even though they'd, they'd gone to catechism, they'd been gone to catechesis for three years, they were baptized, and they were kept in the church for, three, for, for an entire week, and they would say to them, now we're going to tell you what it's really all about. This is really quite remarkable. If we did three years of catechesis where you came to see the pastor and you were with a sponsor who actually taught you how to pray, how to read, how to listen to a sermon, how to come to church, and then we said at the end of three years, boy, you don't really know anything. You need to give us an entire week. You need to give us the first eight days. That's really a different way of thinking about the world. And so this was quasi-modo genitai Sunday, like newborn babies. You're all like new babies. You know, it's all new to you. It's all changing. It's all fluid. Okay, so um, the church recognized that and institutionalized it. So the text was traditionally 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And you remember this great thing from Romans where you are, in fact, baptized into his death, baptized into his resurrection. That's what baptism is, that you have this mystical union with God, that you are, if it happened to Jesus, it happened to you. You are bound to his life. The only fate you have is his fate which is frankly a very good fate to have. It is the recreation of us all. And of course the challenge then, 
as you'll hear in the readings for the next 50 days, is living within that recreation with doubt and fear and suffering and challenge. Nevertheless, these are the days of Easter. And then someday, um, you know, the Lamb's High Feast with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, and you get to be part of that too. So, all right, here we go. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who through the death and resurrection of your Son has proclaimed to us the gospel of peace, grant that by the power of his resurrection we may be born anew to a living hope, and so overcome the world through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, questions about anything? Everybody okay? Got stuff? All right, everybody have, uh, have you got a... I'll tell you what, I'll send this with Pastor uh, Gain. It's funny, I hadn't looked at this for about a week. It disturbs me every time I look at it. If you want this, if you want this painting from Gaining, I'm not going to make too much out of it, but I'm going to refer to it a little bit. So if you want it, just raise your hand, you can have it. Um, you should be on the one that says number 15. I've got a number 16 coming up, but let's do 15 first. So you know this, the Lord gives himself into creation, and then there's a fall, and to close the gap, you know, he gives a son, and uh, this son comes in flesh and blood, and incarnates in this great text from Hebrews 2, 7, for a little while Jesus was made lower than the angels. Your little brother to the angels, you and me, and Jesus is made lower than the angels. He's made our brother, and because he's our brother, we have uh, the Lord as our father. And, and so this, um, uh, you know, and was made man, and, and you, you bow at that, or, or traditionally genuflect. You know, the, just as an aside, <clears throat> every once in a while, Pastor Gainig, when he wants to rile me, threatens me with a genuflection. So, uh, but, but you know, of course, that, I mean, it's there in James. We, we read, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That is the course of genuflection. When the name of Jesus is said, you actually bow your knee in subservience and honor. And, of course, it's one of those things that we don't do. But I think you probably, did you ever have grandparents who still, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Lutherans did, they couldn't quite bring themselves to genuflect. But did you have grandparents who used to stand and pray in the, in, in the, in the aisle before they took their seat? Did you have that? Did you ever have grandparents like that? We don't have any parents like that hardly at all. We probably don't have any kids like that. But we might. But it used to be that people would, it's very common in a Catholic church to see people genuflect and then move into the aisle. Um, Lutherans, you know, they sort, of, they sort of truncated that a bit simply by praying at the altar. You'd see them pause and move through. And you should have been struck today in the readings by, especially the Acts reading, how it didn't talk about Jesus. It talked about Jesus, and then it talked about in his name, at his name, in his name, at his name, because Jesus isn't there anymore at the Acts point. He's already ascended to heaven, and all they're left with is the name, so the first commandment is about Jesus, and the second commandment is about his name. And the disciples very early on were clear that when you don't have Jesus, you have his name. And so in these, as you remember, this is all, you know, review for you, but as you remember the gospel candle, I'm, I'm sorry, the paschal candle, the Jesus candle, goes on the gospel side. Churches are built facing east. North is the gospel side. The candle goes on the gospel side, and then... At the ascension service, when they read the gospel and he ascended into heaven, there'll be uh, an acolyte who at the, that moment will put out the candle. That'll be on a Thursday. He'll put out the candle. There'll be a slight pause. And then it's, it's uh, Nelson's sermon from this morning. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? And the answer is, he went up to heaven. And then the next Sunday when you come, 
that candle will be moved here. Why? Because if you're looking for Jesus, where do you find him? In his name. Where does he put his name? In the water. And then on you. So we had a baptism at nine. We'll have another baptism. You know, whoever is the altar guild, they actually warm the water for the child. Now, I like it better when it's cold and they scream and the demons come out, but that's just me, okay? Um, They used to say it, when when a child cried through its baptism, they used to say, that's a good thing, the demons are coming out. And sometimes, you know, it's a little like speaking in tongues, you can manufacture it. You can manufacture the cry by making the water icy cold. But that's, you know, just an old pastor trick. You probably should, don't ever do that. You're too pure-hearted for that. So if you're looking for Jesus, the point of all that is, if you're looking for Jesus, you look for him here, and you look for him here. That's why the crucifix is the only other thing. The only thing that ever goes on the altar is the body and blood of Jesus. And, you know, the crucifix, which is a clear representation of the body and blood of Jesus, and an altar book, Jesus' own words. But other than that, flowers, offerings, none of that stuff goes on an altar because the altar bears Christ. Where do you find Jesus? You find him here, so the candle comes down. You find him there, so there's a book that opens, and you find him here where the bread and wine are, then changed to body and blood. And just as an aside, you know, um, one of the things I've been surprised by is um, sometimes when we say change, people bristle at that a little bit. Our confessions say change. If there's no change in the bread and wine, it's idolatry. There has to be a change, which means Jesus puts himself into the chalice and puts himself in, into the, into the, onto the patent. That's a change. Now, we don't say the change is that the bread, wine isn't there and the bread isn't there, but it is, in fact, a change. It was bread. Now it's bread body, as Luther said. It was wine. Now it's wine blood. Jesus takes himself down from the cross and down from heaven and puts himself in there, or as the catechism says, in, with, and under, which is just a way of trying to explain that we, can't, we don't know what we're talking about. It's just, a, it's just a way to talk about the mystery. That's all it was. And how I got all the way there from point number three, I have no idea. Except that in theology, everything is connected, so there's always help, you see. All right, so now we're on this in-between, and I took you through the Isaiah thing of you know, in him is no beauty, but you need to be very careful with that because that, the word that's used there is different than noam. The, um, the word that's used in Isaiah 53.2 is not the word used for beauty, but rather there's no honor. There's no uh, sort of exaltation, which is true, I mean, in some sense. It's the most dishonorable thing. And that then took us to the picture of the naked Jesus. Um, Pastor Ganey was telling me that he just heard <clears throat> a lecture on the radio where the uh, speaker was going on about a painter who had painted Jesus naked and they'd said that the man was a heretic. So that probably makes me at least half a heretic for giving this to you. Although this is so repulsive in one way that I can't imagine you're going to spend a lot of time with it. I mean, I, didn't, I haven't looked at it for a couple of days and I looked at it again. I'm just, uh, I put it away for a couple of years or something now because, and I, I tell you what, the repulsiveness isn't about Jesus. It's about um, one is the great fear and desperation that is in Jesus. You, you can not only see it in his face, but in the bodily agony. Uh, you know, He who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He really became sin. There was that great quote. Did we run that quote about Luther said? He becomes the thief. He becomes the... Did we, did we run it? We run it before. You know this great Luther quote where he says, Jesus becomes the thief. 
Jesus becomes the adulterer. Jesus becomes the murderer. Jesus takes every sin, extracts it all from you, and takes it into himself. He becomes the sinner that you would become holy. And you never have to think about your sins again because he takes that. Well, here's the thing. To have a sin is to be at combat with God. And so what you witness is this, is Jesus, he's in mortal combat with his father. You know? And what happens is, as hard as it is to say, is that his father damns him on the cross. Um, and, And the most disturbing thing about that is how the guys who are there just don't seem to notice. They're just moving through life, man. They got a nine to five and they just gotta keep going. Let's just keep going. And if that's not us, I don't know what is. We just gotta, how can it be, I mean, this is my pastor crankiness coming out, how can it be that last Sunday can be the most populated Sunday of the church or how can last Sunday have the largest attendance and how can this Sunday have the smallest attendance how can that be except that we can't pay attention for eight days how can that be now you can't say that in an Easter sermon because if you say that then people have an excuse not to come back I've heard people preach that you sort of like you got them here give them hell well you know if you think giving them hell makes them going to come back more then go ahead but um, the reality is that we can't pay attention for eight days to the, to the one event on which the entire universe turns is, I mean, that puts us in the, that's us, man. Because you can't remember, not you all who are here, but we can't remember what happened last week. We can't remember what happened 10 days ago. And that, that of course, then is our challenge. I mean, you can, uh, my great disappointment, I, you know, it's kind of fun having the young guys. By the way, I moaned, uh, someone pointed out to me in my last Bible study of last year before the Christmas break, um, that you weren't paying enough attention to the young guys. And then um, somebody wrote me and said, well, we're paying better attention now. And I think that's been true. I think the young pastors have quite a lot to offer and uh, pay attention, so thanks for that. Um, but all of us, here's the thing. I mean, when I was younger, I was always startled by this. Um, and I think they've been startled, too, a lot by this. I mean, they, it's hard to put together how you can have what you had last week and then have this be the lowest end of the church. It's just hard to put those two things together if people actually mean what they say. And yet, um, you know, it's the season of crabgrass, you know, which is how sin moves through the world, just slowly coming at you. Have you seen, have you planted bamboo in your yard yet? There was an article in the New York Times last week about how when you plant bamboo, your life is over because there's two kinds of bamboo and one of them goes through and they basically it takes over everything in its path in fact there are people who have dug 10 feet down excavated their entire yards to get it out and by the way it goes on to your neighbor's yard that's always the most fun and it just burns up and they said you know short of having um, some pandas to eat it down there's nothing you can do sin is like that you know it just keeps going and it sprouts up you know you dig it out and it sprouts up over there 75 feet away and you're just like there's no, so don't plant bamboo, by the way. That's what I learned last week, in addition to the resurrection. So, all right, now here's my question for you, though. I don't even know if I'm still on here, but I'm somewhere. Um, there's no bamboo on here anywhere. There's the, there's the, there's the clumping kind and the, and the creeping kind. You want to plant the clumping kind, the creeping kind will do you in, which is how sin is, too. Here's the thing. The execution, this execution is the center of your faith. Now we're going all the way back to what we've been doing. And my question for you is, I mean, I don't know if you think of this. You've got a cross hanging up there. You might as well hang a noose or an electric chair. 
That cross is an instrument of torture and execution, and yet it is at the center of our faith. And more than that, we talk about the cross as being beautiful. People die, you know, holding a crucifix to their head. That child was exercised with the sign of the cross this morning. There was an exorcism, come out you unclean spirits, and then anointed, Christed in the Hebrew with chrism, the oil of anointing. That, 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 that it was, there was an exorcism with a cross and then brought to new life with a cross. Now, how is it, one, that an instrument of torture and death can be the center of your faith? I mean, I would just be interested to go around, men and women. How many, you know, there's 100 people here. How many of you are wearing crucifixes in some form? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a fair number of you. I mean, it's like, it's like wearing, you know, sharp knife. Okay, so one is, how does that become the center of all that you do? And it's too easy just to say, no, the resurrection is the center. No, the resurrection is about a crucified, executed body coming to life. You can't pull it apart. You've got to have something to resurrect. There's a deadness that comes back to life. You can't have the resurrection without Good Friday. You, know, you can have Good Friday without a resurrection. You can't, have good, you can't have a resurrection without Good Friday. So how is it that that can be at the center of our universe, at the center of all that we believe? How can that be the cosmic point of everything that has ever happened anywhere in the entire universe? How can that be? And how then can people come to speak of that as being beautiful? And that's, you know, that's where you are. So um, I sort of gave you, um, I tried to give you a little bit. This is now, wow, this is kind of confusing. Uh, I was on point six, and now I'm going to point three, which is just before point eight. <clears throat> wow, and that's why my picks in the NCAA Final Four are doing pretty good, too. I didn't really mean to have Clemson in the Final Four. I just, that was, I got my numbers mixed up. So uh, here's the thing. All right, so it should be seven. And I sort of said, uh, uh, you know, thanks for letting us go to this conference on evil. And then this brilliant woman, uh, Carol Harrison, you know, sort of says, think about, the, think about the crucifixion as a blue note for you jazz types. Think about it as, as an offense, as something that breaks the mold in order to draw your attention and make it better. Nagel used to say to me, you can only break the rules of English when you know the rules of English. You know? it's, the same, it's the same for musicians. They can only, they can only play the odd note um, when they know the right note. It's the same for the liturgy, by the way. You can only do uh, something different than the liturgy when you know the liturgy. <coughs> You, know, a, you have to know the rules before you can break them. Okay, so here it is. This offensive beauty that upsets you, that sets you upside down, that makes you different, that casts the life in a new way. So this is it. I'm sorry, it's number three. I don't know how that happened, but, uh, but there it is. So here's the thing. So at the end of that, our, in the midst, on the cross, Christ takes to himself the most abysmal ugliness. Did you, um, what's the... Um, What's the Tom Hanks movie where the guy sucks the sins out of people? Green Mile. Yeah. Have you ever seen Green Mile? Where he goes up to the guy and actually sucks the sins out of him. There was a Twilight Zone once for you who are really old. Who watched the Twilight Zone? Sins of the Sin Eater. Did you see this? Yeah. See, there's always one guy. Listen, you're the only guy who's also, you're the only guy who's also seen the Bruce Lee movie. And what is he thinking about? 
I mean, what are you people doing with your time? I mean, that's why you've got to love Nelson. You've got to love a guy who, th- who, can, who can find the gospel in a Bruce Lee movie. I mean, that is like, that's a guy who sees that everything is connected. That's perfect. So, I mean, but there's the sins of the sin eater, wasn't it? He had, he had, his, his sentence to hell was to absorb the sins of everybody else, right? This is a Jesus motif set in an upside-down sort of way. This is a very common theme, you know, or Luther's great exchange. Jesus gives you his holiness in exchange for your sins. Which is why, here's the thing. I mean, I don't know if you can kind of get this right. I always am nervous. Um, it's an occupational hazard. For example, um, there's always this great, or there has, I, now I should always start with the positive. The last five years have been better, but earlier in my career on Right to Life Sunday, you'd get a lot of mailings that would say, you know, if you're a faithful pastor, you'll just stand up and give them hell. You'll just give them hell about abortionist murder. You'll just give them hell. You'll give them hell. The problem with that is, of course, is that I'm 50 now, but I had a lot of friends, male and female, who were involved in abortions. I do. And I know that in any congregation, there are a lot of people, male and female, who have been, uh, been, been involved. And, and they're, they're broken by that. There's a lot of people who have told a lie and are broken by that. There are a lot of people who have been unkind and broken by that. There's a lot of people who have been betrayed somebody or been unfaithful or picked something or are broken by that. And when a pastor says that's a sin, immediately what needs to be said is, and Christ has absorbed that to himself. You want to know where your sins are? They're in that photo. They're in that picture. That's why it's so good. You know, part of the reason that picture is so good is because it's so cruel. It's so cruel. And in its cruelty, with Jesus hanging there, is the assurance that um, he has absorbed whatever it is that you've done. This is why part of the, I just, you know, sort of the part of the, what we're trying to figure out is we want to have a crucifix in the new place, and we're trying to figure out what sort of crucifix that might be. Um, if I had a crucifix, as you see in this picture, none of you would ever come back. But I'm also not sure that simply a risen Christ like this sort of hands extended as if he might have once been crucified, but now he's not anymore, and you don't really need to think about that. I'm not sure that that is theologically appropriate either. What you want to see when you see a crucifix is that your sins have been absorbed, that they're not your sins anymore. You know, if you're, if you're, if if you're, if, you know, you're, you know how you're a reformed alcoholic? Well, you're a reformed liar. You're a reformed thief. You're a reformed, forgiven anything. And that's the most joyous place to be. So you all who are sinners, if any of you happen to be sinners here this morning, you might remember that whatever you've done has been absorbed 10 days ago on the cross and that it didn't have the last word. The resurrection is it didn't have the last word. It was absorbed and then disappears. That's why you who came for private confession, um, you know, we're trying to find a way. See, part, part of our problem is you, we're just scared to death. You'll just think it's just words, which is part of the reason you could toss stuff on the fire. Uh, you know, we had 40 or 50 people come, which was a pretty good first effort for not, not making a big deal out of it. And, but the kids were among the best. There were, there were some kids who came and just sort of tossed it on the fire and then said, well, there it goes. That might have been the line of the week. Yeah? You just toss it up. Whoop. There it goes. And then turn and walk away from the altar. If we could get you to the point of you saying with your sins, whoop, there it goes. There it goes. 
then, then, then there's, then you might be Christians. Yeah, then there might be hope for all of us. You know, and some of the, sometimes some of the most pious people are the, are mo- are, are the most tortured by their sins because it's so out of character. I just don't do that. I just don't say that. That's just not me. When you've done a sin like that, then you finally realize what forgiveness is. When, you, when you've come to a sin that you couldn't believe that that was in you, that's when you, that's when you understand the cross. You, you would have never done it if you'd had a second to think about it. But you said it or you did it, and Christ absorbed it, and you're free. And you see then, this is why point eight, you can say the crucifixion is the most beautiful thing that ever happened. You know, how, can, how, can, how can a noose, how can an electric chair, you know, how can a guillotine, how can a cross, an instrument of torture and death, be the most beautiful thing that ever happened? This is, the cross is central to beauty. In the 20th century, von Balthasar was probably, uh, talk about stupid things you do. Here's one for me. Um, Long ago, far away, when I was at Cambridge, you know, part, I think I told you, um, you know, I had a friend who wrote a book and said, you know, he's, in, the, in the preface, he said, I went to a blue-collar high school. I read this when I was about 40. I'm like, you went to a blue-collar high school? I, I thought, so literally, I thought to myself, I thought, uh, you went to school with me, and I didn't go to a blue-collar high school. And then I started thinking about my life, and I was like, whoa, that was interesting. And so, you know, in some ways, I've been extraordinarily fortunate, the places I've been. But in some ways, you know, this is how you have to help other people. I, um, when I went to Cambridge, I got to, you know, um, Rowan Williams was my tutor, one of my tutors, who is now the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he assigned me some of this stuff to read. And, you know, the poor man must have just pitied me uh, as I couldn't get it. Uh, and later I found out that he had written his dissertation on beauty. Uh, and uh, when nobody else was paying any attention to it, you know, 30 years ago, it's kind of it's getting a little more traction now. But you know, the the, the things you miss as you go along your life, and you, I think to myself, ah, what I would give to you know, talk to Rowan about beauty for, you know, 12 weeks now. But you know, here it is. I mean, it's all you, and it's your chance to think about it in a different way. So, von Balthasar saying, you know, the cross is central to beauty. Or David Brown, Mrs. Gainig's advisor, who's now gone to St. Andrews, who's, you know, well, he's at least a final four candidate in the realm of beauty. He may be the best guy. The crucifixion looks horrible until there's, there's a hint of the divine. Oh, my. Or, look at this, the obedience on the cross is a form of beauty. That Christ would actually go to the cross and become sin for you. You must have had some experience in your life. Can you think of one experience in your life where somebody actually did what they said they would do and it mattered? Can you, can you think of a time when you were really jammed up and you really needed something and you could hardly ask for it and you asked for it and somebody came through for you? Or alternately, where somebody did a kindness for you that you didn't even know that you needed and the only way that you understood it was because it put you in a whole new place. That's what happens on the cross, that he would obey and that you would find yourself in a new place. Or Christ's humiliation is his glorification. John's gospel is all about the glory of God descending to earth. 
And then Jesus says, my greatest glory will be on the cross when I am raised up like Moses' snake on the pole and all men see me. So his greatest glory is in service. And his greatest joy is in the humility he shows in absorbing your sins and exchanging them for his divine goodness, for his divine beauty, for staying with you so you can be loved and you'll never be alone. That's the gospel. That's all there is. Um, you can take, you know, uh, next week we'll go again. If you want to on the way out, you can take on this side is what I was going to do today. But, you know, sometimes we always have to back and fill a little bit when we've been here. I'm sorry we kind of carried on. Um, do mark the 20th. Do pay attention. Do say your prayers. Do get busy. There's just a lot for all of us to do. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. See you.